May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I can just see Thomas going up to the locked door and giving that secret knock. So the disciples knew who it was. It wasn't one of the bad guys. And the door opens a crack, and they see it's Thomas. And Thomas walks into the room, and there are all the disciples standing there, and they're just staring at him. And he turns around and asks him, he's like, what, did I miss something? And they're like, yeah, uh, Jesus showed up. (laughs) Thomas, as Nate was relating, uh, Thomas is like, you know what, when I see it, then I'll believe it. Until then, I'm going to maintain a certain degree of healthy skepticism. The story of Doubting Thomas is one that uh, is present even in broader society. You could go up to secular Boston and mention the words Doubting Thomas, and someone can tell you something about this story. The reason why the story has such resonance with us is because we find ourselves so often in places where we feel like Thomas, where there's a degree of skepticism, where we're trying to figure out what to do, we're trying to sort out what we believe. And I have to confess, when it comes to environmental issues, I often find myself in that place. Now, I want to be very clear, I am not someone who is a climate change denier. I, uh, in fact, the first time I ever ran into anyone who was a climate change denier, was here in Houston three years ago. Uh, I, was visiting, uh, my, I was visiting Houston at the time, and uh, one of my mother's very close friends connected me with this uh, couple. Uh, the husband was a lawyer, longtime lawyer for the oil industry. And they had retired, and they had a house up in Chapel Hill. And so I traveled up to Chapel Hill, got a chance to see the beautiful hill country, and he insisted that I go swimming in the pool in the back, and I'm sitting there swimming in the pool, and, and uh, I found out it's just the two of us sitting there, uh, myself and this lawyer, and I decided to test the waters. I mean, why not? I'm a, I'm a good guest, right? So I'm like, so what do you think about climate change? <laughs> and, and then he said, uh, it's a complete hoax. And I, I, I almost fell over in the pool. I was, I was expecting a number of things. I certainly wasn't expecting that. Uh, as I said, I've never, I never had heard anyone articulate that viewpoint in my life. Uh, coming from the Northeast, it just, people don't, that's just not something people do. And, and I said, well, what do you mean? I mean, most scientists agree that, this, that man-made climate change is a real thing. He's like, well, actually, the Earth hasn't, uh, the Earth has been cooling since 1998. This is, this is, this is something that's, not as big an issue as you think. Uh, he mentioned, moreover, that uh, the temperature fluctuations in the 20th century could be explained by things like uh, the uh, Pacific mid-ocean like oscillations of the tides and the particular uh, radiation coming from the sun at various points, that this is, that this is natural. And, and moreover, the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere from humans versus the natural world is relatively small. So this is all just, this is all great liberal conspiracy. Now, since we hadn't had dinner yet, and I didn't want to be kicked out, uh, I decided to keep my mouth shut uh, after that. But I do want to clear up the record just in case there's 
uh, lingering doubts. Um, the, uh, something like 97% of scientists who actually study this, not scientists who study other things, uh, not scientists who have a PhD in whatever and then decide to make statements about climate, but people who actually study this for a living, who are the experts, uh, 97% say that, yes, man-made climate change is a real thing. Now, scientists don't agree on anything, let alone something with almost clear unanimity uh, on something. That's, that, that alone should make us sit up and take notice. But as to the specific claims that he made, because uh, you do hear these things from time to time, uh, 1998 uh, was an El Nino year. So that's, again, with this big warming in the Pacific. It led to record temperatures uh, throughout the globe. And uh, there, was a famous, there were famous satellite readings that were done about 10 years ago showing that the atmospheric temperature had actually declined since 1998. Well, apparently since then, uh, the atmospheric readings uh, from these satellites have actually been revised uh, because satellite readings can be somewhat uncertain um, and do, in fact, show warming over that period. More to the point, climate scientists will say far more accurate than the satellite readings are actually surface temperature readings. Uh, around, the, around the globe. And surface temperature readings have been unequivocal. Uh, that in fact, uh, the 15 of the last 16 years uh, have been the 15 of the last 16, have been 15 of the 16th, 15 of the 16th warmest, warmest years ever. Um, the only other one outside that was 1998. At least that we haven't recorded human uh, time. Um, not only is the temperature clearly rising, um, but it turns out that climate scientists are well aware of sunspots and their effects on the climate, and they factor those into their models. Turns out they're well aware of the impact of oce oceanic currents, and they also factor those into their models. And even when you factor those in, the only way you can explain the degree of warming we've been having is when you look at uh, greenhouse gases, particularly CO2. Uh, and even though the Earth does produce a lot of CO2 on its own, uh, it's in a careful balance. It's in a cycle. It's when you add on more to that that you start to throw the cycle off and cause other issues. And again, I, I felt like saying to this guy, I'm like, don't you, haven't you looked around? I mean, to say that the climate, hasn't been, the climate hasn't been changing would come as a shock, I think, to most people who don't uh, read science textbooks. I mean, when I was a kid, for instance, it... When it, during the wintertime in Massachusetts, when it, when it became winter, it stayed cold. It just stayed cold. It got cold, and then it just was cold. And then eventually it got warm. Now, it's like a yo-yo. I mean, some days it's like negative 30. The next day, it's 65. And that never used to happen. Uh, I remember going, my senior year in college, going sculling on the Charles River uh, on Christmas Eve day. I mean, this is... This would have been unheard of if I had said any, to any uh, rower in the past that you ever rode on the Charles River on Christmas Eve day, they said it's impossible. It never happens. Uh, what happens now? You see uh, record ice flow changes. Uh, you see uh, once in a hundred year storms happening twice a year. These things are, these things are tracked. This is, this is a real thing. And uh, again, it <laughs> when I was thinking about this lawyer's comments, it, re it reminded me of that uh, famous Upton Sinclair quote that I know I've mentioned before because I like it. Uh, it's hard to get a man to understand something when his salary depends on not understanding it. <laughs> but be that as it may, the whole man-made climate change thing, 
That's not where I find myself like Thomas. It's when we ask ourselves what we're supposed to do about it. What implications does this actually have? And on that matter, that's where I find myself not quite a true believer. Last year, as I'm sure many of you recall, there was this big dispute over the Dakota Access Pipeline. And I know very little, I, I freely admit, I know very little about the oil and gas industry. Um, and so it's actually kind of fun to live in Houston and learn more about it. And when this all came up, I was surprised. Uh, again, this is a pipeline made by Energy Transfer Partners here in Houston that uh, had a pipe that, uh, going through a portion of the Dakotas that went near a, a Native American reservation, and people on that Standing Rock Reservation were protesting the building of this pipeline. Well, again, I found out about it because my Facebook feed exploded with the hashtag uh, no dapple, and I had to look up what that meant. And I was surprised when this came out that the president uh, kept quiet for so long. This is a president who's one of the most hardcore environmental uh, presidents we've ever had. So that forced me to look more into this issue. And one thing I discovered was that you know, the Bakken oil fields in North Dakota, in order to get that oil largely to refiners, you have to rely on rail, rail travel. And rail travel is much more dangerous than pipelines, than shipping oil by pipelines. So if you want to be good for the environment, actually one of the best things to do is build a pipeline. Again, much safer than using trains. Uh, and, and we have thousands of miles of pipelines, it turns out, everywhere in the country. A lot of people in the Northeast don't know that. But there are thousands of miles of pipelines uh, all over the country, and the pipelines that are built today are actually uh, pretty good about uh, trying to prevent leaks. Can they happen? Yes. Uh, do I blame people for not wanting a pipeline in their backyard? Not in the least. I wouldn't want one in my backyard. Um, but the, the reality is Energy Transfer Partners, it turns out, did go through a permitting process, uh, including going through the tribal council, in order to get access, in order to be allowed to build their pipeline. So I'm studying this, studying this stuff, and as I start reading more statements, I realize that a lot of the people who are there are actually there because they are opposed to fossil fuels altogether. That they are just adamantly opposed to burning of fossil fuels. Uh, some because of a love of the earth and thinking it's uh, robbing the earth, others because of a concern over climate change. But again, the realist in me is like, well, we get 80% of our energy from fossil fuels. Only in the last couple of years has renewable energies cracked 10% of our total energy uh, production in this country. So realistically, we're not going to just stop using fossil fuels tomorrow. That's just not, this is not, that's not going to happen. <laughs> so, and then, of course, the, the irony, some of my friends were flying out to stand with these protesters. Uh, and, of course, I'm like, well, you're getting on a plane in order to do that. You're using your burning fossil fuels in order to go protest the extraction of fossil fuels. The issue is just, it, it's a complex issue. It's also a moral issue. It has major moral implications. The primary reason is because the effects of climate change disproportionately affect those who are poor. And as Christians, uh, Jesus and God calls on us to have a particular concern for those who are poor. Take the example of Houston, for instance. In one of these, I remember in one of the recent 100-year floods that we've had, uh, I remember reading that the Greens Point neighborhood, which is just north of downtown, was severely flooded. And I found out that a lot of these apartment buildings, uh, low-income apartment buildings, were built on a floodplain. Why? Because that's where land was cheap. 
So they built on a floodplain, and then when you have a 100-year flood, they got flooded. I remember during one of these floods, a friend of mine was trying to navigate his way through Houston and had the bright idea of going through River Oaks because he knew that uh, (laughs) River Oaks wouldn't have any flooding anywhere in spite of having a bayou going right next to it. Those who are poor are the ones who stand disproportionately to suffer from climate change. That is one example in Houston, but the same thing is true all over the globe. Those people who will be most affected by Severe flooding, uh, severe weather incidents. You look at Hurricane Katrina. Um, the people who will be most severely impacted are those who are poor. As weather becomes more uncertain, more droughts, more flooding, uh, you have uh, pressure on crops and crop production when famine hits and the price of uh, food stuff goes up. Who's the one who suffers? Who are the people who suffer? This is a big moral issue. But it's also complex. I mean, countries that are developing countries say what? You're going to deny us fossil fuels now? You, U.S., you, China, have used cheap fossil fuels in order to industrialize, in order to bring incredible wealth to all your people, and now you're going to deny that to other countries? You're going to say to India, or you're going to say to other countries, no, you can't use fossil fuels? Potentially having those poor people not be able to lift themselves out of poverty? Are you going to go say to the person who, wants to go, who, who chooses to go live up in Greenspoint, no, you're going to have to go to a smaller, uh, not-as-good apartment in some other place because of the potential threat of flooding? Do you want to say that? It's complex. But it's also an issue, this is where you have to be honest, this is where we have the, the Christian thing comes in, it's also an issue of my own human sinfulness. That does factor into it. I know we don't like using the word sin very much in this church, but uh, every once in a while you can let me sneak it in. My own sinfulness. I mean, I'm serious here. I'm serious. This is a big issue. Um, because let's say, let's say we do start making major strides towards limiting fossil fuel production. Well, that requires sacrifice. How much sacrifice are we going to make? Then there's the issue, okay, let's say I'm sitting there driving my uh, electric car, my hybrid car, right on I-10, surrounded by 10 Ford F-150s. Or I'm like, hey, I'm going to keep my thermostat in the summertime to 80 degrees, uh, and then I walk into a movie theater and the temperature's at 62 in the middle of summer. Or let's say I say the worst way of expanding your carbon footprint is by getting on an airplane. Now, of course, my family lives in Chicago, lives in Florida, lives in Boston. So am I supposed to not see my family? Meanwhile, certain business people are flying over 100,000 miles a year. This is the issue that economists call the tragedy of the commons. When you have a common good, uh, how do you incentivize people not using that common good? Let's say you cut back. Well, someone else might not cut back. These issues come up. Now, there are solutions to these issues, but they're real issues. And they have to do with me and how much I want to change. And then there's the fact that climate change happens over a long period of time. For a lot of people in this meeting house right now, the big impacts of climate change you'll never see. It's kind of a dark thought to bring up. (laughs) But it's true. Now your children or grandchildren will see that, but you won't. How much do you want to give up now for the potential impact in the future? An impact that we can only guess at. This is what I've been wrestling with. I mean, where do, how do we find that motivation? What do we do? How do we, be, how do we get beyond that Doubting Thomas thing? Now, today or yesterday, it was Earth Day. 
established back in 1970 uh, in order to celebrate uh, the ecology uh, that we live in and enjoy, the earth, um, to celebrate the environmental movement, which in 1970 was certainly picking up steam. That's the year of the, uh, one of the big Clean Water Acts uh, that got passed. And as I was thinking about this, I thought back to one of the, the early part of the environmental movement. One of the earliest environmentalists in the U.S. Is, was, was uh, Theodore Roosevelt. He passed in 1906 a bill called the Antiquities Act, which allowed the president to set aside huge tracts of land uh, to what, for what became our national park system. Why did he do that? There was no selfish benefit that T.R. derived by that. T.R. was a rich man. He could do what he wanted. What motivated him to do that? Well, he'd been there. He'd seen these amazing places that are truly breathtaking. He experienced the environmental world in all of its wonder and glory, and he loved it. And it wasn't out of a selfish motive. It was more of a fact that he's like, this has to be preserved because it moves me deeply. In Massachusetts, where I'm from, the largest national park in Massachusetts is the National Seashore. It's the outer edge of the Cape, of Cape Cod. And it was established in the early 1960s by John F. Kennedy. Now, the Kennedys uh, have a house on Cape Cod. It's not on the National Seashore. It's uh, a little ways away. But Kennedy was obviously very familiar with the fragile ecology of Cape Cod. And so even though this really annoyed developers a lot, because uh, this is prime seaside real estate, he put it all under government protection. And I've been there. I walked with my friends along that National Seashore, and I tell you, it's stunning. You're walking along. There are only a few entrance points to the beach. So there are, there, there are multiple mile-long stretches where even in the summertime, you can walk and there's no one around. And you're walking along the beach, and there are these dunes that go up like 30, 40 feet from the ocean as you're walking along. And again, you have that brilliant lapping of the waves and this incredible power and pulsation of the ocean. There's nothing quite like the ocean. And I have to say, even every time I think of that, it, it moves me deeply. I see why Jack Kennedy wanted to preserve it. It wasn't out of a selfish interest. It was out of his love and appreciation for the environment. When I was a little kid, I remember going up to New Hampshire, to Lake Winnipesaukee in New Hampshire, um, and being out on the water with my grandfather. I was probably four or five, and just being overwhelmed by how beautiful it was and falling in love with that area. And my family has gone back there every year since. There are private individuals there who set up the Lakes Region Conservation Trust. It's an entirely private endeavor where they buy up as much land as they can to keep it, in, to, to keep it from being developed. They do not see a return on their investment for this type of thing. They do it out of a love of the area and a desire to preserve it. Now, as Christians, especially Christians in Houston, we have a responsibility. This is the energy capital of the United States. Um, and I think one of the things that we can do as Christians is be truth tellers. So to do our research on environmental stuff. And when you come across people like this lawyer I ran into who say that climate change is a hoax, to say, well, let's engage in discussion on this. Because I think you're wrong. You can be a truth teller. You can be a truth teller here in Houston. And it matters, especially when you're in a place like Houston. 
You can also say to people who you think are having unrealistic views on the environment to say, hey, listen, there are millions of jobs at stake here. There are lots of interests at stake here. Can we think and talk about good public policy and push people to do that? We're Christians. We need to lift up the values of those who are poor, those who stand to suffer the most from climate change and actually say that these values, these voices make a difference. That's part of our Christian responsibility. And we also can name our own selfishness in the midst of this and just call it out. I don't know how much I'm willing to sacrifice. Am I willing to sacrifice not, vis- not seeing my family in order to keep my carbon footprint low? Probably not. But I'm going to call that out and say, okay, let's talk this through. That's what we should do as Christians. But we're never going to get to a point of being true believers, of actually being motivated to do something unless we can, each of us, rediscover a certain amount of that love of the earth, a love of the environment, and have that love, have that motivation to maintain things be a motivating force for us to be that voice that's so needed today. So I invite you uh, during this worship service and after, think in your mind about those times when you valued the outdoors the most. Think about those times you spent with friends or family or just by yourself and sit with that for a while. And let that love overwhelm you and help motivate you to do more.